You're listening to The Good Dirt with Byron Smith, where we take the dirty, smelly, unwanted bits of what's happening in our world and give them some time, some air, some mixing, in short, some composting to see if they might turn into fresh soil from which new life might spring. In this episode, I'll be talking with Josh Doughton. We'll be talking about the 26th of January, about the coal industry, about the school strike for climates, about disappearing insects, and through it all, the big idea of who it is that we pay most attention to and are we listening to the more vulnerable voice? We're recording today on Gadigal country, stolen land, land never ceded, land long beloved by God, and for tens of thousands of years, the home of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. We dedicate ourselves to the task and privilege of caring for this land under indigenous leadership, that it may remain and become a home for us and for all God's creatures. We also return after our summer break and it's uh, great to be back and I look forward to hearing any feedback and welcome tonight to Josh Doughton. It's, uh, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Josh is Associate Pastor at uh, Northside Baptist. He's into community gardening and permaculture. He's uh, done some New Testament scholarship, particularly focusing on the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Tell us a little bit about your experience growing up. How did your family consume the news? Was there a time, a first time that you remember hearing a story that where you felt the news was entering into your life? I grew up in a uh, very small country town on a, a hobby farm and we didn't have a TV, didn't really listen much, uh, much to the radio and so I was, I was probably blissfully unaware of uh, most of the news as I was growing up as a child. But I do remember the, the first time uh, that the news really stood out to me was when Paul Keating rolled Bob Hawke uh, to become Prime Minister. And, and I remember it on television. Uh, I remember seeing Bob Hawke's face as he came out of the party room uh, and realising that something significant had happened and thinking, wow, what's, what's going on here? Mm, the political knifing we had to have. Mm, apparently. <laughs> Our first segment uh, of our three segments is what's the big idea? And in this segment, we explore a concept, whether it's from history or philosophy or from theology or psychology, a concept that helps us join the dots between things that are going on in the news and help us to really get a, a better grasp of them so that we don't just hear and, and respond immediately, but can start to tease out what the implications of these stories might mean. So far in our first episode with Scott Sanders, we talked about the theological idea of common grace. And then in episode two with Brooke Prentice, we talked about just world belief, the idea that the world is fundamentally just. Last episode at the end of last year with Lisa Sharon Harper, we talked about core spiritual lies, certain untruths that are at the heart of national or communal life and that shape the priorities and assumptions that we uh, live with together. And this episode, the big idea is the epistemic priority on the oppressed, or that we should listen first to the weaker voice. So let me explain what I mean by that. In all social conflicts, there's a question of how do we come at it? How do we try to understand what's going on? And, uh, you know, the general advice is that we ought to listen to both sides or to all sides. And that's, in general, very good advice. But we need to acknowledge that many conflicts are asymmetrical, that one side or one group has more power, more influence, more muscle, more wealth, and thus more ability to get their voice heard. So the idea of listening first to the weaker voice doesn't mean 
listening to the quieter voice or the more reasonable voice or the more educated voice or the more expert voice. In fact, often the voice of the weaker party will turn out to be more angry, more bitter, less polite, less reasonable sounding. And so when I say that we uh, listen first to the weaker voice, this is an iterative process, a process that we have a first stab at and then reflect and see if we may have got it wrong because we can misunderstand which party is actually weaker. It's also the case, obviously, that the weaker party isn't always in the right. But the stronger party, by definition, has a greater opportunity to manipulate the situation so it looks like they are right. And so this big idea acknowledges that and says that in order to mitigate that effect, we need to pay extra attention to the voices that might be getting suppressed or sidelined. And this is an idea I think I first learned or first learned explicitly from a fascinating book called Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf. And uh, Josh, I know that this is a book that you've read as mm. well. And I'm, I'm wondering if you want to say a few words about this book. I've said a number of times, I think that this book is probably one of the most important works of theology written in the last century. Uh, and I know that's a big claim, but I, I think it's actually... Mm. Um, that important and Miroslav Wolf is speaking as someone who grew up in the former Yugoslavia and and has some idea of uh, these kind of issues the process he goes through of, of talking about the, the the process of moving towards embrace or full reconciliation um, where there has been breakdown of relationship uh, it, it's really an amazing process that he outlines but he talks about things like how we go about getting at what actually happened. So, for example, he uses this idea of stepping outside of ourselves, even with one foot. Uh, we know that this claim to pure objectivity of what's happened in our own lives or in history doesn't exist. And so there, there has to be ways of seeking to get at a better or, or a fuller version of what actually happened. And so he talks about stepping outside of ourselves, even with just one foot of, of seeking to see things through someone else's eyes. And I think that feeds into uh, to what you're talking about here. Yeah, I think so. And I began by calling it the epistemic priority on the oppressed. And uh, let me explain what I mean by that. Epistemic is just a fancy philosophical word to mean the study of knowledge. And the oppressed is a shorthand way of referring to whoever the weaker party is in a conflict. The alternative to this position that, in a sense, this big idea is critiquing is the idea of holding a position that claims complete neutrality, that claims to assess each case on its merits, that tries to stand back and take that position of the objective observer that you mentioned, which sounds lovely and reasonable and balanced and fair, but which completely ignores our capacity for self-deception and our built-in biases towards the status quo, as we discussed in episode two with Brooke Prentice. We want things to stay the same. We want to believe that the status quo is more or less just, that we don't need to radically change. We all, wherever we find ourselves, rich or poor, powerful or weak, we all have a bias towards the status quo, even those who might currently be suffering unnecessarily under it. So the work of challenging that bias is difficult, and it can be disturbing to our mental and emotional stability. We'd rather just not have to rethink things. And so the powerful make use of this bias, already having more resources to devote to putting forward their case. They have more lawyers, more spin doctors, more sympathetic newspapers, more powerful allies, more cultural alignment with the markers of success and privilege. So the powerful typically make use of this status quo bias to make themselves look reasonable in every conflict. And uh, I mean, I think there's been a big example of this this week. We won't discuss it in great detail, but I think 
the revealing of the uh, court verdict on Cardinal George Pell, um, where he was convicted of uh, five counts um, of violent sexual crimes against teenagers. And the discussion that has happened afterwards is a good example of the powerful, who have powerful allies, being able to put forward their position and make it sound very reasonable, even in the face of a court having found the opposite. I've, I've raised it now. Is there any comment you want to make on that particular issue? It wasn't going to be one of the ones we're going to discuss in depth because there's been so much said about it this week. No, and I, I just think to, to make that point of it's a, um, it is a horrific example of exactly this and and the way that um that that can be manipulated into um oh let's be reasonable here um and then you think about it and say hang on a second what what has actually happened here this man has been convicted of these crimes um heinous crimes Mm. um and and yet there is a, a whole support network ready to go into that um to to challenge, um, uh, you know, or, or to almost gaslight um, in, in some uh, respects that, that, that guilty verdict. And I, I think this, you know, this has been a personal learning curve for me and I think for a number of other people in coming to a greater appreciation of some of the dynamics that occur with these mm. awful instances of abuse, how the weaker party, the, the, the victim, the accuser, can easily be sidelined and their perspective made to sound unreasonable, um, illogical, impossible. And so the epistemic priority on the oppressed doesn't mean every person who makes an accusation is always telling the truth, but it does mean you assume first that they are and and see where that leads you. And you listen to both sides and, you know, and a court is a great example of, you know, bringing forward all the relevant evidence and carefully scrutinising it when it's doing its job well. Anyway, I, I didn't want to dwell on that particular topic, but I thought it, it was a good example of just this idea we're talking about. And so our big idea here, listening first to the weaker voice, is an acknowledgement of this unbalanced power dynamic and the ability that the more powerful have in being able to put forward their case with uh, greater force and greater persuasiveness. And so if you want one really practical implication of this that I think also applies to the, the Pell case we were just talking about, I think an implication is don't read your news primarily from the mouthpieces of the wealthy and powerful. And by that, I mean the corporate news media, the major media corporations that are owned and run for profit. And in Australia, this is particularly the Murdoch Press, who controls something like 70% of the daily newspapers in Australia. And so my strong advice to anyone wanting to digest the news, that is to find the bits and pieces of scraps that we might compost into good dirt, My advice is to gather more of your bits from sources other than the corporate news media. Mm. You need to still be discerning about that. And I'm not saying never read anything from The Australian or never look at news.com or The Daily Telegraph or whatever your local Murdoch rag is. But I am saying that if that's your primary source of information, you might want to consider how that could be shaping your perspective, your diet, and which issues get brought to your attention is important, which get overlooked. Back to you, Josh. Let's uh, talk about a pet peeve that you have. What's one thing about the news media that bugs you? Is, is there some detail they keep getting wrong or practice they do that really irks you, something they keep forgetting? There's a lot about the news media that bugs me, if I'm, if I'm perfectly honest. I think one, one thing in particular is, 
is that it's just always on. We are in this cycle of the 24-hour news cycle. It's always there and things are moving so quickly. They're jumping to conclusions or presenting things as facts that clearly aren't because they're so desperately seeking to have the scoop and things move so fast that doesn't really matter anyway because they can move on to something else and then people forget it, it also just bugs me that it is that it is always on and I sometimes forget that and then just find myself with that kind of sense of anxiety of all these things going on in the world and I, I recognize that that comes out of my privilege that I can sort of turn that off and try to unplug from that but it does it does get to me just constantly having it on having it there all the time yeah uh, I mean I think of a cartoon that gets shared around every now and then on social media of two people walking along the street and one turns to the other and says my desire to stay well informed is at odds with my desire to stay sane Mm. Um, and that's a feeling I think many people have of just being overwhelmed by the amount of news that comes at us and you know particularly with the internet we have access not just to local news not just to national news but to news sources from around the globe and discerning where we should be paying attention is quite a challenging Thing. And then that's why I wanted to raise that question of the media diet and where we focus our attention and to make sure that it's not just on the mouthpieces of the already powerful. Mm. In addition to that, it's also the case that there is a battle going on for our attention, that our attention is profitable mm. for advertisers, that the news organisations, most of them, many of them, are for-profit organisations. And one of the ways that they make their money is through advertising. And the more that you look, the more that you click, the more that the advertisers make that profitable. That introduces an incentive into journalism, into the news media, that is at odds with honest investigative reporting. There's there's a motive other than the truth there. The motive is to keep your attention. It, It reinforces sensationalism to try and get you to click through or whatever it is um, yeah. to allow them to have the advertising that they have. That's right. And so you get headlines that are clickbait that try to tease you with something amazing but don't actually tell you what it is so that you follow through the, you, you know, you leave your social media site in order to go to the actual uh, website of whatever the publication is. But it also is what topics get covered, what topics mm. gain prominence. It means that outrage makes the front page And that's actually one of the reasons behind this whole podcast. In such a context, how do we stay informed? How do we pay attention to issues that do actually really matter, Mm. but which might be being kept off the front page because it's more profitable to have something else there, to have the latest scandal, the latest gaffe, the latest outrage? There's there's a way in which, tongue-in-cheek, we could say that your your pet peeve with the news media is capitalism, (laughs) that uh, so much of the news media is run for profit, and the introduction of that motive creates an incentive that's at odds with telling the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't we dive now into some of these stories, uh, into some of the stories that uh, Josh or I have noticed recently, ones that we think are worth paying attention to, that have some significance beyond the momentary, beyond the passing, beyond the personal, um, but which relate to some of the deep drivers of change in our culture and in our society and in the economy uh, and in the world. And uh, so we're going to dive into four stories today. And Josh, I'm wondering if you want to introduce the first one for us. Yeah, look, this this is actually going back uh, 
a number of weeks now, uh, but going back to the ever-present or the, the annual blow-up over Australia Day and the date for that, for, for any of your listeners who may not be Australian or uh, who have been living under a rock and haven't understood or, or been uh, exposed to all of this, uh, Australia Day, known as Australia Day, on the 26th of January is the celebration, I think you know, many people see it as, of the birth of modern Australia. It's the date when the First Fleet, the British First Fleet, essentially took the land that's now known as Australia and mm. claimed it as the, the British penal colony that uh, became known as, as New South Wales. That's right. It's not even the date that they arrived, nor no. even the date they first set foot. But it's the date they set up the flag and made the claim. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's interesting was, in itself, isn't they it? They were down in Botany Bay and then they sent the, some people into Sydney Cove, uh, Port yeah. Jackson, all, all of that. But that was that's the date of the, the kind of taking the land uh, understood as terra nullius of uninhabited. Obviously. The first symbolic step of dispossession of the first peoples of the land. It was uh, it was inhabited. Uh, it was the land of many peoples for thousands upon thousands of years. So that date, known as Australia Day, celebrated by many people as the birth of the modern nation, is known as Invasion Day to uh, a good many people, uh, many Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander people, or Survival Day, and not a day to be celebrated at all, a day uh, to be mourned, a day to, to mark as uh, the beginning of significant trauma for so many people, so many of the, uh, the first peoples. Um, First Nations people. So every year there's this discussion about Australia Day. Is this, is this the date, the 26th of January? Is that the right date to have it on? There's all sorts of discussions about changing the date. Uh, and there was an article written this year by Luke Pearson, an Aboriginal man who, um, who set up... At first it was a Twitter handle called Indigenous X, uh, for Indigenous Excellence, um, I think it was, and then it's become much more than that. But he, he gets all, uh, all kinds of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, people to speak into issues every week um, on that Twitter handle. Uh, it's, it's an amazing source. He it's has, now a news and opinion site as well. That you yeah, can that's get right. It's a website. And, yeah. and they're getting into, like, it just keeps growing. Um, uh, so getting into training and all sorts of stuff, but uh, that's another story. But Luke has been someone who has previously been known as very much for changing the date of this national day because January 26th. Uh, is not suitable for that, for our national day of celebration. Uh, and he wrote an article this year, which is the one we're talking about. That was a really long introduction. Sorry for that. Saying that he's actually changed his mind and that he he thinks that if we change the date, it'll just be another day of celebrating something that's not actually worth celebrating. And so he wrote this incredible article calling for a change to the nation that there needs to be such substantial change that yes, the date should change. It should absolutely change. But we need to do, we need to get to that work of substantial change in our nation uh, before we're at a point that we can celebrate together. Mm. Ironically, he's making a point that is in agreement with a lot of the critics of change the date. Absolutely. Which is that merely changing the date would be shallow symbolism, doing yeah. nothing to benefit Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Uh, you know, at one level he's saying, yes, there are more important issues than just the date. Though at another level, symbols matter. Yes. And it's worth acknowledging that this isn't a new request. Um, that uh, as far back as 1938, there were organised Aboriginal protests asking 
Not that nothing happened on the 26th mm-hmm. of January, but that the 26th be reserved as a day of mourning, yeah. um, a day for lament and reflection and remembering, in much the same way, you know, that Anzac Day, for instance, is, is a day for reflecting upon Meant to be, the, yeah. the horrors of the past, or, yes, is intended to be, is yeah. best thought of as. And so it, it's not asking that nothing happened on that day, yeah. but that it be reserved. And, and that's an important part of healing and well-being. Hmm. But Luke's pushing this further. Yeah, I, I think, to be perfectly honest, I think often it's used as a cop-out. Yes, um, yes. We want to see substantial change. We don't want to act, go for mere symbolism. So often is, is a cop-out that doesn't lead to any, you know, quote-unquote, substantial change anyway. So I think I think what Luke is arguing for is is the both end and saying yeah. we, we need, we do need, of course we need symbolic actions that um, that can create space for new possibilities, but this country is in need of substantial transformation in order to be worthy of celebrating together and saying, yes, we're at a point that we can do that. Yeah. And if I can pick up on a series of events that each of us have been tangentially involved with Mm. recently um, that are coming from, in some ways, a, a similar perspective to Luke. And these are a series of church services, prayer meetings that have happened over the last few years at the instigation of Arnie Jean Phillips and, and with the, the help of Brooke Prentice, mm. who was our guest on episode two. Prayer meetings happening first in Brisbane and then increasingly all around the nation. And this year, I think there were 17 in different places, maybe 18 uh, and there was one in Sydney, just you know, one suburb over from here that we were both at. And the theme this year was not change the date or change the nation, but change the heart. Mm. What was your experience of that service and how does that feed into this discussion we're having? It's testament to the work of, of someone like an Arnie Jean Phillips, who for decade upon decade has been calling us exactly to this kind of thing. And with with the help of people like Brooke now and a, a sort of team um, of, of younger people um, getting involved and getting behind that, I think, I think it's asking for the same thing, obviously from a, a Christian perspective and saying we have the framework to actually be confident that change is possible, that true repentance is possible and reparation and, and all of these things. And so that call is is not an empty one. It's not a it, it's not a symbolic one, but I think a really powerful call um, and one that we need to listen to. And it's, it's really heartening to see the way that that is uh, continuing to grow. And those services have been an amazing time of lament, of mourning, of recognizing history, of truth telling, which mm. is so important, but also with with a hope that change is actually possible. So I, I think that they've been a, an amazing thing to, to be part of. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. We'll put a link in the episode notes so that those who might have missed it can uh, read about it and keep it in mind for next year. The, the services don't happen on the 26th, but in the week prior to it, Neither. leaving the 26th so that people can be involved in a, a wide range of different activities that happen on that day, including Survival Day marches um, or other acts of solidarity. I, I guess the, uh, the interesting point in terms of the big idea of this episode is noting the fact that we are too... Mm. white middle-class males discussing these issues. And so in one sense, we're doing precisely the the opposite of what we're uh, suggesting is a good idea for this. But it raises raises an interesting question, I think, for us 
of what is our role. Uh, what it, what's our role if we are going to seek to listen to voices that have traditionally been uh, silenced or ignored? And what's our role in getting alongside that of of amplifying whatever whatever that looks like? What 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 do you think? There's a principle that I've heard for this kind of situation, which is nothing about us without us. Mm. So that where there is a discussion that involves or that, that concerns a minority group or an oppressed group, they ought to be present and part of that conversation in order that the voice of the weaker party might be heard. And yet, as you say, here we are with a podcast that is the two of us. So there's a way in which uh, it was important that the first conversation happened with Brooke about some of these mm-hmm. issues. Yeah. But I also think it's important that the effectively the main thing that we're saying in this conversation, well, the main thing I want to say is go go and listen to Luke Pearson. Uh, you know, we think it's a good article to go and hear that important voice, that contribution. Go and have a look at the Change the Heart services that Brooke Prentice put together um, and, and Annie Jean and Phillips put together. Pay attention to those voices first and foremost when it comes to thinking about these discussions that happen every year. Mm. Uh, I think another role that we can play is when people are passing on misinformation, when the the louder voices of the settler colonialists like us Mm. are actually passing on ignorance or prejudice or things that are disconnected from history, it ought not to be up to uh, Indigenous people to correct them every time but that those of us who are trying to learn more about our own history, the history of this land that we now call Australia, are able to speak up. And uh, if I can just point to one more resource that has just started to come out in the last couple of days, The Guardian has just started a new series called The Killing Years, which is an exploration of the widespread incidents of uh, massacres and genocide against the first peoples of this land all across in every state and territory. And, you know, that could be a whole topic in itself. And perhaps in a future episode, we might explore some of those. And I, I, I should just add in, uh, I feel uh, compelled to add in at this point that we've, we've raised a couple of really big things straight off the bat, yeah. um, including the, the Pell verdict and now these issues as well and so uh, just want to um, note uh, the number for Lifeline Australia for Australian listeners one three double one one four just in case this discussion has raised anything for you and, and you need to speak with someone yeah having had a somber heavy start let's uh, move to a more personal moment again another interlude question for listeners to learn a little bit more about you Josh can you think of a time in your life when you've changed your mind over something as an adult mm. where you've, you used to think or behave one way and then something convinced you otherwise and you now think differently? When I turned 18, I was convinced that voting and participating in the, the political process was useless. Uh, and I now don't think that. I've changed my mind. Uh, so when I turned 18, I made the decision to uh, not to enrol to vote. Uh, voting in Australia is mandatory and you have to fill in the forms at 18 and, and get on the electoral roll and all of that. And I didn't. And I got away with it for, oh, it must have been three years or something like that. And I can't remember exactly how I got found out, but somehow the Electoral Commission found me out and got me in a little bit of trouble and, and ensured that I was enrolled to vote. And so it was kind of against my will that that happened. But I'd made the decision that if I wasn't going to vote, I wouldn't pay any attention to politics, wouldn't have an opinion on anything. And that if I was forced to vote, I would. I would understand or seek to understand who I was 
voting for what the policies actually meant not just voting for someone because I like their face or they've got a good haircut or yeah, something like that. Or they're that. a Christian. Uh, or they're, yeah, um, I, I want to know what their policies actually mean. And so through that process, I've been convinced that as imperfect as the system is, and it, and it really is. Um, yeah. We'll get onto that in our next yeah. story. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it is worthwhile for people to be invested in it. And I think that we can actually create change and be part of uh, creating change together if we are invested in that. Mm. Perhaps this is another instance actually of a big idea where the idea that you can completely withdraw from political life and wash your hands of it as it were because it's all just either irrelevant or so awful is in a sense a position of privilege Absolutely. of those who are not already getting crushed under that system. Those who are on the underside of history don't have the option of just withdrawing from politics because it is in their face affecting their daily lives all the time. And so the idea of deliberately withdrawing from any participation in public life and not paying attention to what's going on in the world around us, in one sense, could be argued to be a position of neutrality. Mm. But the point is, it's just to let the bully remain in charge of the playground. Absolutely. And, uh, and it, didn't, it didn't affect me. Yeah, I was fine. I would have been fine out of that. But certainly the, the impact on other people's lives for not participating is huge. And the way that we use our vote as well, um, I think is really important. Yeah, it's one part of engaging in the public life of a nation. It may not even be the most important part, hmm. but in Australia, it's an unavoidable part legally. Yeah. But I think also morally, as we're saying. Yeah. And it's an opportunity once more to not just pursue what's good for me, what's convenient, but to pay attention to those who have, have the least ability to look after their own interests yeah. and seek to heed what their priorities are and vote accordingly. Our second story looks at a couple of recent developments in the coal industry. And so one story which came out on the 20th of February relates to the massive mining company Glencore. It's actually the largest exporter of coal by volume in Australia. And Australia as the world's largest exporter of seaborne coal means that Glencore is one of the largest exporters of coal mm. anywhere in the world. So they own lots of coal mines, they move a lot of that coal around, and they made an announcement on the 20th of February that they were going to cap their coal production at 2019 levels. They're not gonna to seek to keep on expanding the size of their coal business. Now, they're not saying they're going to wind it up. They're not saying they're suddenly going to shift to producing clean, renewable energy. But they're saying, no more. We're not, we're not going to keep growing. And this is really quite a significant development uh, for a giant like Glencore to explicitly make a choice to deprioritize coal. And even bigger, that they point to climate concerns amongst mm -hmm. major shareholders as the reason that they're doing it. And there's been some really interesting shareholder activism around this with, with a large group of major investors who've been pushing them on this and they're responding to that pressure. Now, some commentators point out that there are probably other reasons why they're doing this and they're certainly not pulling out of mining. They're just refocusing onto things like copper and cobalt and nickel and zinc and so on. And, and some of that are quite necessary, but it's, it's still quite a symbolic move. It's the first time a major coal company has made a decision explicitly to step back from full throttle ahead with coal because of climate. And this comes on the heels just a, a couple of weeks earlier, on the 8th of February, of a historic ruling from the Land and Environment Court against the Rocky Hill Mine. Uh, and again, for the very first time, a court in Australia rejected a coal mining proposal on the basis of climate change, explicitly referring to that in the court's uh, reasoning and setting a precedent 
There were also some local considerations, but it, it was the second major consideration was the impact that this coal mine would have on the cumulative global emissions that are contributing to destabilizing the climate and making the whole planet less habitable for all of us. Uh, a third development happening a bit further afield, this isn't in the Australian coal industry, but on the 26th of January, Germany pledged to close all of its 84 coal-fired power plants by 2038. Again, that's a bit slower than is really necessary if we want to keep the overall warming to a scale and at a pace that might be manageable. Uh, if we want to stay closer to under two degrees, then more than that. But still, it's a big announcement for a major economy like Germany to put a firm date on which they plan to have ended coal. And also in the last few weeks, uh, on the 7th of February, in the United States, the Green New Deal was launched by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a number of others, sort of co-sponsors. And this could be a whole episode in itself talking about that um, proposal, but it is an ambitious proposal to shift the US economy to 100% clean energy by 2030, along with a recognition of the necessary economic and racial and gender uh, injustices that the, the transition could potentially exacerbate and instead it's explicitly arguing for a rapid transition but one that is socially, economically, racially just mm. and so that's seeking to be a win-win-win. So there are many, many developments in the last few weeks in the, the coal scene and rather than focusing on any one in particular, I sort of wanted to pull them together and just note that there's some movement happening here mm. that wasn't visible four or five years ago when coal was ascendant. That coal in particular, there's, there's more and more signs um, of the world gradually shifting away from it. It's not nearly fast enough and things need to keep on accelerating, but there are some little sparks of hope there. Look, I think it's uh, it's hopeful these kind of stories do. Well, look, they, they lead me to a, a little bit of a sense of cynicism in some ways, uh, which I'll get to, but also glimmers of hope there as well. I think the cynic in me says uh, sometimes uh, Glencore is possibly using some of this language to look better than they actually are. They know that it'll fly well. Yep. Um, and there's, there's other reasons. You know, it's not necessarily just that pressure, but just the economic viability is is not stacking up for them so they use that language to pack it up nicely having said that that's still a good reality Hmm. if the if the economic viability isn't there there's reason for that Uh, and so i think that's a hopeful sign in and of itself it also uh like it, it saddens me that the the government the current government in our nation uh is moving more slowly than some of these huge corporations who are invested uh in coal so i i look at that and i think these are some of the realities and yet we still have a government in place that is is kind of pushing coal 100%. So that kind of frustrates me um, a little bit. Yeah, really I think it's quite startling, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, but overall, there's a, there's a hopefulness with some of those other things that you mentioned that there's a, there seems to be a trajectory that is gaining momentum. There does need to be more significant change. Capping coal export at 2019 levels um, isn't good enough that's still a huge amount so that needs to be reduced um, ultimately but i think it is encouraging yeah that's right there are are signs at the economic level at the political level at the social level that perhaps where the reasonable center sits Mm. um, reasonable in inverted commas is, is shifting somewhat 
anything that doesn't involve preserving a habitable planet is incredibly unreasonable and that the entire spectrum of acceptable mainstream opinion on what is a reasonable climate policy falls outside of that. Mm. So that is, I think, the entire debate remains fundamentally unreasonable because even the most ambitious proposals from Labour or even the Greens will not be sufficient to do our just contribution towards a world that that isn't radically destabilised by climate change. Nonetheless, the degree of unreasonableness has shifted slightly Mm. less. (laughs) So perhaps some good news there. And our third story moves into one other aspect um, Mm. of this shift, and and we'll focus in on this one because it's, I think, quite interesting, and it's the school strike for climate. Now, this is a growing global movement that was begun by a 16-year-old, she was 15 at the time, a Swedish schoolgirl called Greta Thunberg, who learned about the severity of the climate crisis and was motivated to try to take action. She exhausted what she felt were the major lifestyle changes that she and her family could do. They committed to stop flying. They all became vegan. You know, they tried to, as far as possible, reduce their own personal footprint. But she realised that wasn't enough. That's not going to cut it. We need political and social and infrastructural change. We need a you know, change of the heart and the whole nation and the whole world, not just of my personal footprint going down a bit. And so she decided, against her parents' advice, she decided she was once a week going to skip school and go on a strike mm. from school for climate. And she, by herself, sat outside the Swedish parliament with a sign that just said school strike for climate in Swedish. And after a few weeks of doing this, she started to get more and more attention. Uh, The media picked up on it and it became a viral story, a media phenomenon. That sparked the idea in numerous other places, including in Australia, where Australia was one of the countries, was one of the first countries to have major multi-thousand person rallies uh, that were school strikes from school children taking a day off school, you know, risking the consequences uh, of, the, you know, being disciplined for that in, in order to add their voices to hers in really saying the adults in the room are failing and, and we're going to step forward and just demand more ambition, more reasonable climate policies in that reasonable sense I talked about before policies that will actually help to preserve a world that bears any resemblance to the one that the rest of us all grew up in. Mm. And so there's a real in- issue of intergenerational justice in with climate change, that the, the generations currently in charge of the world have done such a poor job of looking after it, despite knowing for decades that this is a real and serious problem. In fact, more than half of all carbon dioxide emissions from humanity have been emitted in the last 25 years more than half. So since the UN negotiation process began, we have emitted more carbon dioxide than in the rest of human history combined. This is, a, this is not an issue that's been committed in ignorance. It's been yeah. done with our eyes open. We know what we're doing. We know what the consequences are likely to be, at least in broad outline. And yet we, as the generations who've been in charge, have continued to do it. And the school children, led by Greta, are standing up and saying, this, this is not fair. It, it's a beautiful example of what we're talking about, uh, the fact that um, she's examined these things for herself and she, uh, you know, you were talking about that process of going through making personal changes, which are good. All of those things are good, every one of them. But there's, uh, we're we're kind of fed this story that if we all just make a few little small changes, everything will be okay. And of course, it's not going to be enough. 
So I, I do think some people think, well, we, we may as well not bother with any of those. I think they're still worthwhile to, to think about our personal impact. Yep. They do open us up to, to new possibilities. But as she came to the conclusion for herself, it's not going to be enough and saying we, we need to do more. Uh, leaders, you can do something about this. Greta's a, a 15, 16-year-old schoolgirl saying, I'm not in charge yet. Uh, hopefully one day she will and many others like her. But uh, power to her. These, these young people who are coming to these conclusions for themselves and making it known and the way that that's caught on and an article uh, here that, we, uh, that uh, you know, we, we thought was worthwhile uh, talking about was one by um, George Monbiot of uh, the kind of leadership that these people are offering to us, these young people who are so often written off. There was that video with Senator Dianne um, Feinstein. Feinstein. Yes, Democratic senator, one of the senior in the US, US uh, senators. Effectively writing off these the voices of these young people who were calling for change and her saying, how old are you? Do you vote? Well, you don't vote yet, so I don't represent you, so I don't have to... You know, effectively, I don't have to listen to what you say. Uh, but these are the voices who are calling for change, who are recognising something that we're, I don't think unable, but unwilling to to fully admit as, as a whole. Uh, and they're calling us to account and their leadership is making a difference. And so there's an opportunity for us to listen to those voices, these people who are going to have to bear the consequences much more than we will. Uh, and certainly some of the uh, even the older generations making decisions now that will impact these young people's lives for decades upon decades uh, Yeah, in fact, centuries Cent- and millennia yeah. to come, that, that the impacts of the current emissions that we're pumping out will last for more human generations than since civilization began. Yeah. So if we're thinking about vulnerable voices, groups that have no power, not just school children and, and actual children alive, but future generations who are not yet born, yeah. fall clearly into a, a group whose interests are, you know, literally have no representation, yeah. no ability to speak. Indeed. Um, and this, so in uh, a sense, to listen to their voice, we need to imagine what they might say. This, this whole thing became uh, personal for me recently with my uh, 11-year-old daughter who had noticed these things on the news, um, I think had been talking with some of her friends at school and, and uh, walking to her, uh, walking her and her sister uh, to school one morning and she said, Dad, would you be mad at me if I went to a, a protest around climate change to say that we, we need to do more? And that opened up a really beautiful conversation. And I, um, I, I'm deeply saddened by the fact that she has to have those thoughts in her head of, I think it's worthwhile doing something, but I wonder if my, my dad's going to be mad at me if I mm. did. Uh, but we have to do something. So I asked her why she would want to. And it was that same thing of, I, I think this is really serious and we're, we're messing things up. And so we need to make people listen. And it, it was a great moment of talking through all those options of how we can go about making change. But this, this is listening to those voices. Are we, are yeah. we willing to hear what is being said? That's right. And if, if you want to get a glimpse into what future generations might say, then you need to listen to children today, Absolutely. particularly those who have had the chance to think about this. Uh, and so I, I do recommend you listen to the speech that Greta gave to the UN. Yeah. Uh, it's only a short speech, but incredibly powerful. 
uh, or listen to the words of the Sunrise Movement, who was the group that was meeting mm. with Senator Feinstein. And the, the full video of that interaction did show that Senator Feinstein had moments of greater empathy than the highlights that, that were first yeah. uh, released. But nonetheless, her argument was essentially a patronising one of, I'm the expert, I've been doing this for 30 years, you need to trust me, you need to let me enter into the complex political negotiations, and if you just stand up and demand the impossible, then that doesn't help anyone. Mm. And yet, tellingly, she has been a senator for 30 years. The precise period during which we have known that this is a global crisis, and yet every single year during that period, virtually, emissions have got worse and worse. Part of the reason why we are seeing children standing up is because the adults have been failing so badly. Yeah, and and they're living under the anxiety of it. A, a yeah. constant anxiety of uh, of worry about what will be. Yeah, no, that's right. And I think in a future episode, we might explore some of the mental health implications, both for us, mm. but also if, if you're a parent for your children. At what stage do you introduce them to climate change and, yeah. and to some of these global challenges that we're facing? At what, yeah. at what you know, that, these are complex questions. I do want to point out that on the 15th of March, there will be a global day of action so that Greta's initial protest was picked up in Australia and then elsewhere. And it's been particularly powerful in places like Belgium, where there have been repeated protests and it's been picked up in the UK. But there's going to be a global day on the 15th of March where school children in in many different countries will be going on strike and adults are encouraged to stand in solidarity with them. One final part of this school strike for climate story that I thought was particularly poignant was just a couple of days ago in the UK, in the House of Commons, they had their first debate on climate policy since 2016. So for two and a half years. And it was talking about the school strike for climate. And during that debate, at some points, there were only 10 government MPs in the House of Commons. Uh, You know, the House of Commons in the UK is is, uh, 650 MPs and, you know, the government has almost 300. This is the reason that the the children are striking. Adults aren't even turning up to have the debate. Yeah, the the images uh, that came out of that were just heartbreaking. Yeah. Do you want to talk about governments needing to provide security for the nation? Yeah. There are a few larger security threats than climate change. Our fourth story is a report that came out in early February that was a meta-study across uh, numerous studies all around the world looking at the proliferation of insects and finding that wherever insect numbers, that the total biomass, the total weight of insects, wherever in the world that has been studied over a time period of beyond you know, a couple of years, insects are in decline. In some cases, in precipitous decline, very rapid decline. And so the story is summarised in this Guardian article from the 11th of February with a headline, Plummeting Insect Numbers Threaten Collapse of Nature. I'll read just the first couple of paragraphs. The world's insects are hurtling down the path to extinction, threatening a catastrophic collapse of nature's ecosystems, according to the first global scientific review. More than 40% of insect species are declining and a third are endangered, the analysis found. The rate of extinction is eight times faster than that of mammals, birds and reptiles. The total mass of insects is falling by a precipitous 2.5% a year, according to the best data available, suggesting they could vanish within a century. 
And so this is a, a, a multi-part story where when it comes to biodiversity, the, the study of the diversity of life on the planet and biodiversity decline, the, the great damage that we are doing in silencing the voices of other creatures, there are, there are different parts to it. On the one hand, there's the loss of particular species and species becoming threatened and then endangered and then critically endangered and then extinct. And that is a tragedy of uh, one variety. But there are other aspects of biodiversity where within a species there can be a loss of range or a loss of genetic diversity. And then there's just the sheer number, the biomass, the total weight. And it's actually that third one, the biomass, that it was the most alarming from this meta-study that came out finding that in in some parts of the world that loss has been up to 98 percent over 35 years in one place in puerto rico that was the most extreme but wherever these studies were done there was significant losses so for instance in england there was a loss of 58% of a butterfly species. And in Germany, there was a, a overall loss of flying insects of, I think it was in the high 70% over three or four decades, that wherever we look, the insects are declining. Even here in Australia, the story coming out just in the last week or two about bogong moths, uh, which you know many people who live in Sydney or Canberra remember fondly or with terror as those enormous moths that seem to turn up in huge numbers and mm. um, get attracted to light during a particular part of the year. And it's actually a great migration of billions of individual moths that travel um, from various parts of New South Wales, largely to a small area in the ACT um, or in, in the, the Alps, Alpine region, um, ACT and, and the sort of uh, mountains of New South Wales. And their numbers have dropped off a cliff in the last few years. That, uh, that, that the scientists studying them are really quite alarmed. These are a crucial keystone species for the, the alpine ecosystem, bringing in nutrients to the area. And there's a whole lot of other creatures that you know eat the moths, basically. Um, they're a traditional food source for the Aboriginal mob who live in that area. But this isn't just a local issue. This is a global issue of insects in decline. It's a tragedy and a tragedy of, of human arrogance because we are doing things that are, are causing this destruction, but we're, we're not listening. To, to go back to that big idea, it's, it's not just listening to human voices, but listening to our non-human fellow creatures uh, and if you take that, I think it's the Franciscan idea of, you know, all creatures are worshipping the creator in their yeah. own. Just by, They're in the Psalms. Yeah, for you. absolutely. By doing what they do. Mm. And we're causing the destruction of that. It's a, it's a crime against God. I know that's strong language, but it, like, it really is that important. And yeah. that's not even taking into consideration the fact that we're, we're stuffed without them in so many ways. But I think that arrogance of living in ways that has such incredible impact on other creatures and having, having not really noticed for so long that this is the, the outcome of the ways that, we're, that we are living, that we're inhabiting this planet. That's right. We are silencing the voice of our co-worshippers. Mm. If you think of, uh, you know, in Psalm 148, it's like a, a picture of a grand cosmic choir with all the different parts of creation singing together in worship of the creator, Yahweh. And it's, you know, we, we are kicking choir members out. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're reducing the diversity and beauty of creation 
and we are cutting off the branch that we're sitting on. As you say, yeah. that, that insects, you know, particularly pollinators, but insects across the board are actually crucial to ecosystems everywhere. Yeah. That they are the, the you know, the foundation on which, uh, you know, so much of the food chain depends, yeah. um, as well as playing all kinds of critical ecosystem roles in aerating soil. All uh, and of the little creepy crawlies that moving are, that are keeping around. soil healthy so that we can grow, so that the pollinators can do their job. Every aspect of that, you remove some of those links from the chains and, and things start falling down. Okay. Absolutely. And I was actually learning about the loss of pollinators that led me into beekeeping and yeah. learning about the loss of soil aerators that led me into worm farming. And worm farming was one of the key influences that led to the title of this podcast. Yeah, right. Learning about the cruciality of dirt to all of life. That this week in the church's calendar is uh, Ash Wednesday, at the start mm-hmm. of Lent. And in that service, there's a beautiful moment where we take the ashes of last year's crosses made on Palm Sunday and smear them on our foreheads in the shape of a cross. And as that happens, we hear the words, Remember, O mortal, that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Repent and believe the good news. And for me, that is such a profound moment that captures so much of what it means to be human to be a creature that belongs to the dust with the dust with the dirt as a member of the community of creation as someone who is mortal and fragile and yet blessed and spoken to and welcomed and marked with the sign of redemption the sign of the cross this is turning into a sermon here but uh, (laughs) we'll have an altar call in, uh, in just a moment yeah, and uh, so returning to the story, uh, yeah. you've, you've said that we are doing this. And in, in the report, it really points out a couple of major contributors to these trends. Yeah. In the temperate regions, the primary driver are changes to land use, um, yeah. you know, loss, loss of ecosystems, cutting down forests, filling in wetlands. Basically, it's, it's the expansion of agriculture and monocultural agriculture, yeah. the use of pesticides to create a biodiversity desert to ensure that only the crop that we want to grow is growing and that nothing else can survive, pushes out the space for other creatures, and it's particularly insects that feel that squeeze. Yeah. In the more tropical regions, the, it's thought that the primary... There's less uh, data available, and less research has been done, but it's thought that the primary driver of decline there is extreme heat waves driven by climate change, that yeah. uh, insects are being pushed beyond their temperature threshold, and you get a great collapse of uh, populations. As you know, some people are familiar, this happens to bats in Australia, that they have a, an absolute maximum temperature that their bodies can handle. And once you hit 42 degrees, they start falling out of the sky dead. And for many insects, it's similar. There's a, there's a maximum temperature that they can handle. And when a great heat wave comes, then you can get mass casualties. And on a warming planet, the likelihood of getting that heat wave that pushes them beyond the range that they have adapted to over millions of years increases as the planet gets warmer and warmer the chances of such a local catastrophe happening multiply Um, and you add those multiple catastrophes together and you start to build a global catastrophe so these are human caused changes that are driving the decline of insects but it's quite complex it's not just a single driver happening here we can't just blame it all on pesticides or we can't just blame it all on climate change there are multiple things feeding into this and and I, i think a lot of those things arise out of our disconnects I'm convinced that so much modern agribusiness is um, 
just inherently harmful for the planet, for biodiversity, for humans, uh, for for everyone really. And yet that's not just saying it's all the farmers' fault because sometimes people hear that and think, mm. oh, you're just having a go at the farmers who are, are so often wedged between a rock and a hard place. Yeah. Uh, but we need to have these conversations and to recognize the fact that it's the disconnect, especially us city folk sitting here and food just turns up into the supermarkets and you're sold for extorted prices and farmers aren't getting the, the proper amounts anyway. But uh, that level of disconnect allows these things to happen. And so it's not until we actually get over that, yeah. start being invested in food production, in all of these things, that we, we start to notice what's going on yeah. and say, this it can't continue this way. It just right. it can't. Yeah. And there's, there's another weaker voice that we need to pay attention here as urbanites are the voice of rural communities. And Absolutely. Um, if, if you want to hear a sustained discussion on that topic and others related to it. Our previous episode with Dr. Miriam Pepper, that was one of the, the main themes we were thinking about in yeah. uh, exploring the unfolding crisis uh, uh, on the Murray-Darling River Basin. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you can go and check that episode out if you haven't already. Let's have a final interlude. And this is one that I call, I'd like to give you a piece of my mind. Josh, if you could say one sentence or make one point to one person in the world and be sure that they were going to hear it, mm. who would you speak to and what is the point that you would make to them? I was thinking I was thinking of trying to add some humour in at this point and unfortunately I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> I, because I, I think if I had that opportunity, the, thing that I, the person that I would say it to uh, would actually be Pope Francis. Mm. Uh, and the thing I would say is, Pope Francis, you have some social capital to spend and you need to spend it there mm. there is such need for change within the institution that is the the roman catholic church i think churches across the board i'm not just saying it's it's the roman catholic church but there is such need for change to some of those structures and i think pope francis has built a level of trust and goodwill with so many people, the general public, that he has some social capital to spend. And I would urge him to spend some of that in service of the oppressed or the abused or the, the people who are ignored. And he has a limited amount of time to be able to do that. Yeah, specifically with the victims, the survivors of yeah. sexual abuse from clergy and leadership. In the church. There is such need for systemic change. Yeah. Um, and that work is hard, but there are possibilities for that to happen. Yeah. And in a sense, part of my hope, but also my disappointment, is that Pope Francis has, on a number of other topics, actually been something of a model um, amongst Christian leaders of paying attention to the voices on the margins. And, you know, his first great encyclical Laudato Si, on Care for Our Common Home, that the uh, most sustained reflection on creation, theology, and caring for our common home that has ever come from the pen of a pope, yeah. and a document that I have encouraged many people to read many times. It's an extraordinary document. really exemplifies this principle, yeah. both in the sense that we were just talking about, listening to the voice of the earth, yeah. but also the interconnections of, of how so many of these issues most affect the poor, yeah. that those who suffer first and most from environmental degradation and climate change are the poor of the earth. And yet it seems that he has a blind spot when it comes to paying most attention 
to the most vulnerable voices in relation to sexual abuse. And so that, that would that would be my, my one thing to one person. Mm, thank you. We'll come to our third segment. Our first was what's the big idea? Our second was what's going on? And the third is what do we do? What do we do? We don't want to just be consumers of the news. We don't just want to have that wave of information wash over us and pick out the bits that seem juicy or relevant to us. We want to be learning about the world in order to be better participants in it, to be more rounded, more whole human beings, to be more thankful, more worshipful, more faithful creatures. And so what do we do with some of these stories? We typically have three parts to this final segment. One is an immediate action that people can do today, something that's you know really quite concrete um, and specific. One is a book recommendation, and one is a more ambitious life commitment towards justice. Let's, let's start with the immediate action. For this, I really want to pick up on a couple of the things that we've mentioned already. Um, so I want to repeat the uh, strike, school strike for climate on Friday the 15th of March and checking out that website, www.schoolstrikeforclimate.com to find out about events that are close to you. In Sydney, it's 12 noon at Town Hall. A couple of other things for your diary. On the 28th of March, peace talks here at Paddington Anglican will be focused on Australian climate politics and some geezer called Byron Smith is going to be talking about that. <laughs> um, so that's, that's a chance to explore in a bit more depth a Christian response to the current state of climate politics in Australia. I'll be re- largely repeating that content two days later in Manly on the 30th of March at Small Boat Big Sea. I'll put the links to that in the episode description. And uh, both those events come in the context of a New South Wales state election on the 23rd of March and then a federal election sometime in May. And as you go about your deliberations to take that small but important part of public responsibility, I strongly urge you to pay attention to the voices on the edge, the voices that don't get heard, the voices that are easily ignored, and in particular, you know, some of these issues that we've raised today, listening to the voices of our First Nation brothers and sisters, listening to the voices in creation that are being silenced, uh, listening to the voices of the school children who are asking the rest of us to wake up and take climate much, much more seriously. In terms of a book recommendation, we've already discussed Exclusion and Embrace by Miroslav Volf, and that is an excellent book to read that I, I do recommend. But it is... 300 odd pages and it is pretty dense it's it, it's it takes work yeah. uh, i think um it's something that you'll probably read a page or read a paragraph and then have to read back over again so it's not easy going but it is worthwhile yeah so that's that's for those who really want to wrestle with this at a theological and philosophical mm. uh level it's a, an excellent text but I, I thought i'd instead recommend something that's a bit more accessible as my book recommendation. And it's a book written by the guy who taught me beekeeping, mm. Doug Purdy, uh, a Sydney cider, a beekeeper. And the book is called The Bee Friendly Garden. So Doug wrote a book already about how to be an urban beekeeper um, that was also really useful and good. But this was one he wrote for people who want to help out mm. insects, want to see biodiversity flourish in an urban setting where you might have a small garden. It might only be a balcony, it might be a backyard. And what can you do 
to help build the flourishing, the possibility of, for flourishing amongst invertebrates in your backyard. And so the title says the bee-friendly garden, but the point he makes on the first page and throughout is that in order to make a bee-friendly garden, you need to make an invertebrate-friendly garden, an insect-friendly garden, a, a garden that's friendly for worms. So, Josh, you have a uh, uh, some qualifications in permaculture and mm. urban gardening. What, what are you? I'm not sure that you've read this book specifically, but I'm, I'm sure, sure you yet, actually know a lot of the, the advice in it. Basically, I, I, I suspect a lot of this would be familiar to you. From your perspective, what are just a couple of things people can do yeah. if, if they want to make their garden friendlier to Look, little uh, the, critters? The first thing that I suggest to anyone stepping into this uh, is take small steps and just start with something little. Uh, start investigating the types of flowers that are attractive to to bees, um, Australian native bees, European honeybees or Australian uh, honeybees and just start out with planting something that's going to be helpful you can move into things like uh, bee hotels or yeah native native bee and insect hotels that provide habitat for all sorts of little creepy crawlies and various varieties of Australian native bees um, that play a really crucial uh, role and you can buy simple ones from Bunnings or you can build your own it's it's actually I, I recommend looking up online and and making one with your kids if you if you have kids it's a really exciting little project to do put it out in the garden see what happens but you've got to spend time you have to actually be in the garden to notice what's going on to notice what might be helpful or what's going wrong with your soil to help it make it more friendly for the the little creepy crawlies in there who are going to like that and ultimately provide a much healthier environment for your plants to grow. So go out and get your hands dirty and do just do something. Do one thing this next week or this next month to help create the kind of habitat that's going to provide a landing spot for bees and other insects to play in. And does that actually make a difference? I mean, we often criticise responses that just remain at the personal level and yeah. sort of only look at you and your little patch. Yeah. Is it actually worth trying to make your little patch more friendly or are these issues that can only be addressed systemically? Uh, look, these issues do need to be addressed systemically. There's no doubt about that. But I do think that these small actions are worthwhile. I think providing habitat and providing uh, food and water and, and uh, the kind of things that these insects need is helpful in an urban environment. We have space, whether it's a balcony, whether it's a small courtyard or a yard or a rooftop or churches. I mm. just, I wish churches mm. would take this seriously and think about their space and creative small scale, uh, small space permaculture that can bring in some of these elements and redeem otherwise useless space down the side of a church or whatever it is. It can be, it can be so easy. And I think it does make a difference. And I think it opens us and the communities around us up to new possibilities for what it can look like. Yeah, that's right. And it can be as simple as just plant more flowers yeah. and spray less. Yeah. Stop spraying. Yeah. We, you can get into the great complexity <laughs> and it, it can be fun to do that. Yeah. But there are simple things that can start that journey. Re research organic pest control mm. and and experiment a little bit with that uh, rather than resorting for a, a spray straight off the bat. Mm. Now, for a third suggestion of what we might do and something that's a little bit more ambitious, I'd like to suggest that you 
think about an argument that you've been involved with recently, that you've, you've participated in recently, whether it was a, a personal, interpersonal conflict or, or some broader social or political debate. And I invite you to critically examine whether you've been giving the powerful voices more airtime, consciously or subconsciously. How, how have you gone about trying to make sure you're paying close attention to the perspective of the more marginalised, the weaker party. And if you weren't doing that, how would you know? Mm. So that's that's my thought there. It's, it's a bit of a thought exercise, a bit of a reflection. And I guess it's really asking all of us to keep on putting that big idea into practice. Mm. Because I find that the more I try to apply this in different areas the more it shapes my thinking and my assumptions and my priorities and the kinds of media that I consume and the kinds of actions that I think might be worthwhile. It's one of those operating principles that you can start anywhere. You can start with any issue. And as you learn to apply it, it just keeps changing things. It keeps opening my eyes to see more of the world that I just didn't see before. Look, I guess you'd probably expect me to say something along these lines uh, because I'm a pastor. But I, I think that's I think that's discipleship. Mm. Uh, I think this is this is a call to take discipleship seriously because if we look to the person of Jesus, he's someone who created space in himself for others. He heard the voices walking along busy roads, and he and he you know he's the voice of someone crying out, and he stops and he listens. And I think this is the kind of thing that we are called to. So for Christians especially, I would I would suggest that this is just an outworking of, of discipleship, of actively seeking to to examine what what is filling us, what we're mm. allowing to, to fill us, and to make priority to hear those voices that may not otherwise be heard as an act of devotion, as a spiritual discipline. Yeah. Well, thank you, Josh. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I hope that you as listeners have been appreciating it too. If you do want to give us some feedback, I would love to hear it. You can sign up to the Facebook page, The Good Dirt. You can give feedback on social media or or via email. I love to hear people's insights and suggestions and criticisms. It's been very helpful as I continue on with this little experiment. So thank you for listening and uh, I hope that all of us can keep on paying attention to those voices on the margins and then getting our hands dirty with seeking to make the world a more beautiful place. I'm Byron Smith and you've been listening to The Good Dirt.